Oh, careful. Okay. All right. Okay. Let's come on in close. Okay, come on in. Look to me. All right, let's fold our hands and bow our heads and close our eyes. Dear Jesus, thank you that we can be here today. We can learn more about you. We can learn more about the Bible. We can be with our friends. We pray this would be a special morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks. All right. Pray for the teachers. Good to see everybody today. It's good to be back. I missed you last week. So I was driving my 2,200 miles, whatever ridiculous amount of miles it was. It was a lot. Um, but I do appreciate the prayers that uh, many of you offered uh, as I dealt with uh, uh, my folks and my dad. And uh, that was much appreciated. Today we're in Hebrews chapter 9. We're in the last part of the chapter as we work our way uh, through Hebrews. This is the 15th sermon uh, on the book. This is a long passage. And uh, it's a little hard to understand, but it's vitally important. So I encourage you to read along, to listen carefully, uh, to get your Bibles out. Turn to Hebrews 9. You can uh, follow along. It's sort of split up in the outline. It'd be easier to read it uh, from your Bibles. But let's listen carefully as this is God's Word. Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 28. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established for a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, 
there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we need it. We need to understand something that's so difficult to understand, the power of the blood of Jesus. We live in an age that thinks this is barbaric and mocks us for it. And yet we know it's totally necessary. So make it real, show us its power, reveal its truth to us, use it to change us so we will follow you more. And so we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would press it home and make our hearts believe. In Jesus' name, amen. I remember when I was in college, just a couple of years ago, and I decided to take a Bible course. I thought that would be cool. And I was gravely disappointed to find out that the professor was a really liberal theologian, and he wasn't, by any stretch of the imagination, uh, even a believer in Jesus Christ or the Bible. Classes were very hard because he regularly mocked the Bible as myth and Christians as just plain stupid. He was very difficult to argue with because he did know a lot about the Bible, certainly more than I did, and he knew a lot about theology. He just didn't believe that any of it was true. And as I said, he often made fun of Christians, and he went out of his way to find out who the Christians in the class were so he could better direct his cutting remarks. And he would take famous old Christian hymns and make fun of the words. One of those was William Cowper's great hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. If you remember the hymn, the words go like this, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And then for a few minutes, my professor would ridicule those words, asking everybody to imagine swimming in a pool of blood and calling the work of Christ slaughterhouse religion and Christians Bible thumpers and ignorant fundamentalists. And I've later learned this was not uncommon. I have found four very similar stories in various commentaries on Hebrews. But back in this college class, I would get really irritated and I never knew quite how to answer this professor. I would try to challenge him on something, but invariably he would take us to the Old Testament ceremonial law about sacrifices to God for the cleansing of sin. 
And he would describe an animal sacrifice and finish with something to the effect of altogether a pretty gory affair. And even though he was an outsider to authentic biblical Christianity, he did have a point. Because later I came to learn while studying the Old Testament in seminary that he did describe the Old Testament sacrificial system accurately. It was a pretty gory affair. And during the thousand plus years the system was operating, there was more than a million animal sacrifices. Considering that each bull sacrifice spilled about a gallon of blood, and each goat sacrifice spilled about a quart of blood, the Old Testament system truly did rest upon a sea of blood. And during the Passover, for example, a trough was constructed from the temple down into the Kidron Valley for the disposal of the blood, since there was so much of it. Literally a sacrificial plumbing system. Why this perpetual sea of blood? For one reason. To teach that sin demands the shedding of blood. It was a pretty gory affair because people had to realize that sin brings death. The shedding of blood provided the sign, and in most cases the smell, of what God wanted people to unmistakably understand every time they came to the temple to offer a sacrifice. Sin brings death. Sin brings death. Sin brings death. So the devout worshiper came to the temple under the Old Testament sacrificial system with a definite awareness of four things. <coughs> I've listed them there in your outline. First, that sin requires death. That such a blood sacrifice requires the spirit of repentance. That through such a sacrifice, he's pleading for the mercy of God, saying, in effect, this sacrifice is what I deserve. Please don't give me what I deserve. Give me mercy. And then finally, there is someone, a great sin bearer, who according to Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 is still to come. And that's the background for Hebrews chapter 9. Because it's that system of blood sacrifice that's in operation in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And it's that system that was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So turn with me to Hebrews 9. We're going to start at verse 11, uh, verses 11 through 14. And we're going to look at a sufficient system. A sufficient system. I, I checked in my last, this sermon and the three before it all used the word sufficient. So hopefully there's a trend getting an idea of what we're learning about Jesus here. But let's read again verses 11 through 14 in this sufficient system. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, 
purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now last week, Reverend Doris showed you there's problems with the Old Testament, Old Covenant sacrificial system. And just really briefly summarize, we're going to see a couple of things. First, there's limited access in the old system. Limited access. The average Israelite could never enter into the sanctuary, ever. It was not permitted access. Most women could never enter the tent at all. And even the priests were only allowed in the holy place for a week at a time. And there were so many priests that most only got to go in uh, once a lifetime. And if one was blessed enough to be chosen high priest, then he could enter the Holy of Holies once for only a few minutes. And they usually tied a rope to his ankle in case he screwed up and God struck him dead, and they could pull him out. And our writer uses all of this to remind us, if you go back to verse 8 from last week, it says, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. His point is crystal clear. Throughout the, all of the Old Testament system, there was no direct access to God, period. And second, there's the problem of limited efficiency or limited effectiveness in the old system. And this is an even bigger problem. The whole elaborate system wasn't good enough. When, when all is said and done, even if it was done totally right, it only covered the sins of ignorance. There's no provision in the Old Testament sacrificial system for forgiveness of premeditated sins. Their only hope, like King David in Psalm 51, is to offer sincere, heartfelt repentance for sin and throw themselves on the mercy of the Lord. Furthermore, the spiritual limitations of this system are even more pronounced. Again, going back to last week's text, verse 9, it says, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Under this system, you could never have a clear conscience. Never. The old system is limited because it's external and symbolic. It's not inward and real. And the average Israelite, people like us, were several layers removed from God's presence. And their consciences never rested easy. Never. However, with the words in verse 11, but when Christ appeared... We're shown the opposite. Under the new covenant of our Lord Jesus Christ, the problems of the old system are taken away. So now we have unlimited access in the new system. The text says, verse 12, that Christ entered once for all into the holy places. No longer is it just for the priests or the high priest. Now all of us, through Christ, can enter into the presence of God. When he died, the curtain keeping us out of the most holy place is torn in half, symbolically showing us that God's presence is open and accessible to all. And not only did Christ make access to, uh, to God available for all people, he made access to God available for all time. Christ didn't enter, perform a ritual, and exit until next year. He entered with the sacrifice of his own blood, once and for all, 
And there he sat down at the right hand of the Father, never to leave. Because access to God now comes through Christ, and Christ is always interceding for us before the throne of his Father, our access to God is guaranteed now and for always. But it's even better, because Christ also provides unlimited efficiency and unlimited effectiveness in this new system. Because if you're in Christ, then you no longer have to worry about having a clean conscience because through Christ, all your sins, each and every one, are forgiven. The text says, verse 14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see, our sins are no longer transferred to the head of a goat by someone else. Our sins have been transferred to the head of Christ, by Christ himself, and now all is forgiven. Christ's work on the cross is completely effective. Think about everything bad you've ever done. We probably don't have that much time. And then you get to face Christ and hear him say, all is forgiven. Take a big sigh of relief. But it doesn't end there because in verses 15 to 22, we have a sufficient requirement. Sufficient requirement. If you look with me at those verses, it says, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, sprinkle with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So the first thing we have to understand is that Christ paid for all our sins, past, present, and future. It says here in verse 15 that a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. In the old system, those with faith were saved by looking forward to Christ. Well, now those with faith are saved by looking backward to Christ. But all are saved the same way, by grace, through faith, in Christ. And yet it took his death for us to receive the benefits of his grace, our rich inheritance in Christ. Because of Christ's death, we receive forgiveness, a clear conscience, Peace, purpose, and eternal life. Impossible apart from his death. But all very real and all very true for each of us because of his death. Second, we need to understand that this continual shedding of blood under the old system, why it was required, why it was needed, why it was done. See, in ancient times, Blood had both a very positive and a very negative significance. 
both positive and negative symbolic value. But for the moment, we're going to talk about the negative. Just for a moment, if you have blood gushing into your eyes or out of your mouth or out of your chest, it's a bad sign. There's something seriously broken. Maybe something mortally broken. In ancient times, flowing blood meant brokenness. So what does that mean? It actually says something very powerful. Why were all these blood sacrifices done? You couldn't get near a God without blood sacrifice through the tabernacle. Why? First of all, this is your way of learning that what's wrong with life on this earth is serious. It's really serious. It's not going to take education, religion, morality, therapy, social change. It's going to take something much more radical than that because the violence and the brokenness and the woundedness of life runs very deep. And we're not going to be able to fix it with anything less than a solution that's equally very deep. It's one thing the blood offerings meant. Another thing the blood meant in ancient times was guilt. So it means brokenness and then guilt. There's many, many places, not just in the Bible, but throughout ancient literature as well, where the phrase, something like, you have blood on your hands, or his blood is on your head. It always means what? Your responsibility, your guilt. And yeah, the world is terrible, the world is broken, but we're all complicit in it. We're all part of it. And part of the reason why the world is such a bad place to live is because of me and because of you because of us. We're all complicit in it. We're guilty. We're responsible. So we have brokenness, we have guilt, and third blood tends to stain. To stain. A very important theme in the book of Hebrews is that blood sacrifice meant that something is seriously wrong. And there's guilt, and there's shame, and there's stain, and we can't seem to get rid of it. You put all these metaphors together in places like Isaiah 59 where God says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so he does not hear for your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. We're doing all sorts of things to deal with our conscience and nothing seems to work. Our sense of failure is indelible. It's a permanent stain. And then notice here this word conscience that's used. In fact, the word conscience comes up in the book of Hebrews more than any other book of the Bible. We're told in verse 14, one of our problems is we don't have peace uh, in our conscience. We're told all the animal sacrifices don't give us peace in our conscience. And then if you jump down to Hebrews 10, verse 22, it says our big problem is we have an evil conscience. So what's a conscience? And normally we think of it as a sense of morality, our sense of right and wrong, God's moral law that's instilled, that's written on our hearts. But if you go much deeper than that, the way it's used biblically often has to do with the self-evaluation of how fit you are to be in the presence of someone else. Again, Hebrews 10.22, it says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience 
and our bodies washed with pure water. You notice it says, let us draw near with a true heart, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. It means before we come to Christ, our conscience haunts us. It's asking us, are you fit for the presence of God? Are you fit for the presence of other people? A bad conscience means a profound self-awareness, a sense that you couldn't survive really close examination. A sense if people really knew who you were, really knew what was wrong with you, really knew what was really in your mind, really knew the motives of your heart, really knew what you were really like, you'd be rejected. That's our conscience at work. And so we see in this system of sacrifices for sins, there's some very, very few but very clear things uh, being taught. Sin is taken very seriously. Sin alienates us from God. We don't feel fit to be in the presence of God. Sin is rooted in our hearts. And sin can't be gotten rid of by any self-help program. You can't work your way out of it. Sin brings death, period. Second thing you learn is forgiveness is expensive. It's costly. To be completely forgiven for our sin requires death. And to be completely forgiven for all of our sin, for all time, required the death of Christ. Because his death brings sufficient cleansing. His death brings sufficient cleansing. Look at verse 23 to the end. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So having demonstrated the importance of the shedding of blood in inaugurating the Old Covenant, the writer now describes the surpassing effect of the blood of Christ in establishing the New Covenant. He begins by stating that the better blood of Christ, first of all, brings better purity. Better purity, better acceptance. Again, look at verse 23. It was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. If the temple had to be purified then, what is the temple now? It's right, we are. Just as the tabernacle had to be anointed and purified so that God could show his presence there, even so the people of God must be cleansed and sanctified as well. We're purified 
by the blood of Christ so that, Ephesians 2.2, we can become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. 1 Peter chapters 1 and 2, which our adult Sunday school class is going to start going through in June, 1 Peter 1 and 2 teach us we've been cleansed by the sprinkling of his blood, the precious blood of Christ, which makes us a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ makes us acceptable to God. Because his blood purifies us, we're acceptable. God accepts us in Christ. Second, the better blood of Christ brings better representation. Better representation. We're no longer represented by another man, a priest who entered God's presence once a year with blood not his own. No, now we're represented by Christ, who entered God's presence forever by the sacrifice of himself. And Jesus' blood grants us a better representation before the Father. Look at verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. As soon as he took his seat at the right hand of the Father, he began his ministry of intercession for us. And as such, he is our constant attorney, pleading our case before the court of the Heavenly Father. Romans 8.34 uh, tells us, as we read earlier, uh, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. And then there's the testimony of the Apostle John, 1 John 2.1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So we have better representation. Third, the better blood of Christ brings us better hope. Better hope. In the old system, sacrifice is a never-ending thing. But with Christ, it's a once-for-all thing. Never needs to be repeated. His sacrifice for our sins is totally sufficient. It's the answer to our sin forever and ever. Again, go back to verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. When the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, everyone held their breath waiting for him to come out, at which time when he came out, they all breathed a great sigh of relief. His return meant that his offering on their behalf had been accepted by God. And in the same way, Christ's second coming, verse 28, he says he will appear a second time, his second coming, guaranteed in the word of God, is assurance to us that his offering, his sacrifice, his advocacy, his intercession on our behalf is acceptable to God. And that our text finishes by reminding us of the great hope that this brings us. 
a hope in Christ's coming again. Look again at verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is a guarantee that we are, in fact, truly forgiven. Jesus has written across our lives in bold crimson letters, forgiven. He has written this in his own blood, shed for many for the remission of sins. And no one can touch those whom he has forgiven. We no longer go to an earthly sanctuary where blood has to be spilled over and over and over again. Now we go to a heavenly sanctuary where blood was shed once for all people and once for all time. Now the blood of Christ may be a stumbling block to a lost world, desperately seeking cleansing. But those who know the depth of their own sin and the awesome holiness of God and yet the deep, deep love of Christ the blood of Christ is the most powerful thing in the land. And though mocked by unbelievers, William Cowper's hymn still says it best. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I though vile as he, wash all my sins away. The old is gone, the new has come. Forgiveness has finally arrived. Sin brings death, Christ brings life, and now Christ is our sanctuary. He's the one we go to. He's our atonement, our redeemer, our hope, our life. He is all we need. His blood is sufficient. There's a great story about a man named Ernest Gordon true story. He was an Allied prisoner of war during World War II. He was held for three years in a Japanese POW camp. He's a native of Scotland, and he served as an officer in the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders. It's a famous Scottish regiment. And years later, he chronicled his experiences on the Death Railway in his book called Through the Valley of the Kwai, the famous movie starring Alec Guinness. The bridge over the River Kwai is based on his book, as was the 2001 film, To End All Wars. Remind you, this is a true story. At one point in his life, while he was held as a POW, he writes, and this actually happened, that one day the POWs were out working. This is from his book. And what it says, I'm summarizing here, the day's work had ended, the tools were being counted as usual, and as the party was about to be dismissed, the guard shouted that a shovel was missing. The guard insisted that someone had stolen it. Of course, it was very serious because if a shovel was stolen, it could be used for escape. Everyone could have escaped. And striding up and down before uh, the men, the guard ranted and raved, working himself up into a fury, screaming in broken English. He demanded the guilty one step forward to take his punishment, and no one moved. The guard's rage reached new heights of violence, and he screamed, then all die, all die. And to show that he meant what he said, he grabbed his rifle, he cocked it, put it on his shoulder, and he aimed it at the first man in the rank, prepared to shoot 
uh, that man and to work his way down the line of prisoners. And at that very moment, at the other end of the line, a soldier from the legendary regiment of the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders stepped forward, stood stiffly to attention, and said calmly, I did it. And the guard unleashed all of his whipped-up hate, kicking this helpless prisoner and beating him with his fists. And still, the Argyle stood at attention, chin up, even though blood was streaming down his face. And his calm silence just goaded the guard into greater rage. And finally, seizing his rifle by the barrel, he lifted it high over his head and brought it down on the skull of this brave Highlander who sank limply to the ground and never moved again. And even though it was clear that the man was dead, the guard continued to beat him and only stopped when he was exhausted. And the men of the work detail picked up their comrade's body and marched back to the POW camp. And when the tools were counted again at the guardhouse, it turned out that no shovel was missing. The men were saved by his blood. You feel the power of his blood? Of course you do. First of all, think of this. Obviously, this man was innocent. And obviously, he knew if he didn't step forward, they all would have died. All the other men would have died too. And he says, me for them. But he doesn't just save them physically. You know these men would never, ever be the same. They couldn't live the rest of their lives the same way, knowing what happened. They'd never be able to live their lives as selfishly as they would have otherwise. In fact, Ernest Gordon, after the war, became a Presbyterian minister and dean of the chapel at Princeton University. And when you hear it, even though this man's blood wasn't shed for you or for me, you can feel the power of them being saved by his blood. Doesn't it make you want to be a better person? Doesn't it make you want to live a better way? What if the blood was shed for you? Let's go back to Hebrews 9, verse 22. The author insists in a fallen world, death is central. Unless blood is shed, there is no forgiveness of sins. The word blood shows up 14 times in Hebrews 9 and 10 alone. And here the Bible says you have to understand this. The meaning of history is tied up here. The whole point of this passage, you could argue the whole point of the Bible, is here in Romans 9 verse 12 where it says, Jesus entered once for all, not by means of someone else's blood, like every other high priest who lived, but he came offering his own blood. He was innocent and yet he stepped forward and died for you. He shed his blood for you, and his blood saves you. Can you feel its power? Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close.
Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you once again that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Thank you that the sacrifice of Jesus, the blood of Christ, has great power. We know it's offensive to many people today. It offends people, yet continues to change lives as nothing else can, and reorients the conscience as nothing else can, and brings peace and love and hope that nothing else really can. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us to learn what this means, that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. Thank you that you have given Jesus to us as our true king, our perfect prophet, and our great high priest. Drive these truths deep in our hearts and make our hearts believe, no matter what, that Jesus is better. Amen.